Hey, good evening there, kiddos. Uh, time to read again. Our Wingfeather Tales book, edited by Andrew Peterson. And the short story we're reading is called The Places Beyond the Maps by Douglas Kane McKelvey. Um, first of all, I got to apologize. That last podcast recording had a weird noise in it the whole time. And I have no idea what it was. I went back to listen to the end of it to make sure I am starting where we left off and it sounded really weird like I was riding a bike or something something like clicking or like a cricket or something I don't know Uh, I checked it out tonight when I did my little test run there were no weird noises so hopefully this sounds good when I do this whole recording this time okay so we left off And the man had found a horse and rescued a horse, which was pretty awesome because he was having a really rough time walking across that stony wasteland with his feet all cut up. He was just in horrible shape. And when you know it, he found a horse that got caught up in some some brush. So he nursed it back to health and now he's riding the horse and he's heading towards the one mountain and he starts to realize that it's going to be winter pretty soon so he's looking for a place to uh, spend the winter and he gets to one place and it's uh, what was it? It's like a little sh- like a abandoned structure is what it says but inside there's like some weird temple sculpture of a fang and he just wasn't having any of that right he got a rope tied the rope around the neck of the fang statue and had the horse drag it out of the house and it broke but he didn't stay he got on his way so we'll pick up here on page 255 a light swirling of snow was falling when he crossed an a descending stream and located a large cave sunk into a quandary of stony foothills to the north. Upon entering it, the man discovered that it had been utilized by other men before him. Animal bones were strewn about amidst evidences of twain fire pits and remains of a crude smithy. Some two dozen bundles of hay were piled against the back wall, bailed, he supposed, for the care of oxen, long dead in some winter that had already passed. The man searched the place and found, protruding from damp, piled ash beside the crude forge, a blacksmith's straight-peen sledge, a heavy, long-handled hammer with one face flat 
and one face wedged. The balance and heft of the tool was pleasing to his hand. He tested the swing of the thing against a large bone in the fire pit, and the bone split vertically along its length. And he knew that the instrument would be useful as both weapon and tool. The hay was well preserved. Two of the outer bales showed evidence of rot, but most had been protected and appeared to have remained dry. He pulled out several handfuls of the silage and offered them to the horse and watched it eat, and the horse seemed to judge it still edible and nuzzled the man's arm for more. The man tossed more hay to the floor and then went and stood at the cave mouth and surveyed the stream below and ran his fingers through the hoarfrost already accruing on the tangle of his beard and considered his options and considered his options weighed against the coming freeze. He had earlier hoped to push on another week or two toward the mountain, but he knew that he would likely find no camp so accommodating as this one. They would winter here, he finally decided, as others clearly had before them. The next morning he climbed the great stones at dawn to survey the land round about and positioned with his back to the rising sun as the near fog burned off. The man deciphered at last there had, that the certain rising of a lone mountain to the west, but at that distance it appeared no larger than a solitary jagged rise of a rat's tooth jutting from a jawbone of horizon. He was tempted to saddle the horse and ride at the mountain full gallop then. But he knew that they would not make it and that it would be a fool's charge across weeks of open ground when even the ice was at his adversary's command. The man felt himself again thwarted and lamented that he must endure a cloistered winter here when he was at last within sight of the fulfillment of his oath. But he had come this far and had endured this long. He could yet abide a winter more. The man turned his considerations then to the details of their winter provisions. He calculated the days of their coming sequester and deemed there would be just enough hay to keep the horse through a short winter. To keep fat on his own bones, he created a fish trap of woven saplings, installing it beneath a shallow fall in the stream that ran below the cave. And he also set it and obscured the metal trap and stripped the branches from hail saplings and, leaving them rooted, bent their resilient trunks into snares along the stream banks. He explored the forested hills above the cave using a spear to dispatch selbrils and other small game, and some of these creatures he roasted and ate, and others he skinned and flayed and smoked for later. While the meat hung curing, the man spent days scavenging firewood, which he piled and stacked into tall mounds of branches and kindling just inside the mouth of the cave. One morning as he labored, a spitting freeze howled over the hills above him, 
stinging the skin and glossing the world with a thin coat of ice. And the next morning the man woke to a snow tossed so deep that he had two hours of exhausting labor just clearing a path down to the stream, and then he had to dig out and reset each of his snares. He returned to the cave in the small fire with his cheeks bloodless and deadened and his fingers and feet too numb to be of service. That, that afternoon and evening, he cut and sewed rough fingerless gloves of the cerebral skins that he had collected and turned the fur inside, turned the fur side inward and this brought some relief for his hands, but his clothes in general were tailored for a different climate altogether and were thin and unlined. And he had at night only the shortened cloak to pull about him, and he wondered if he would yet die here of the cold, and if he might not have been better off in a mad fool's dash for the mountain before the winter had set in. If not for the fire and for the warmth of the horse that he slept against, he would have certainly perished in that first brunt of glacial chill. But even so, he shivered uncontrollably and woke to the chattering of his own teeth before dawn in that startling cold. He saw that he must make a warmer den of it or die for the lack, and his first thought was to employ the bales of hay. So the man set about unpiling them, architecting in his mind how he might restack them into a sort of walled enclosure at the back, a simple structure that would trap his body heat and block the freezing winds that sometimes burst savage and howling through the mouth of the cavern. Raising sparks from the fire and swirling them down the hollow throat of the passage. The horse nosed at the hay and watched the man as he pulled bales down from their haphazard piling. He had removed perhaps ten bales when the horse snorted and laid its ears to its skull and shied back from the man's work. What is it then? The man went to the front of the cave and looked out but saw no movement, so he returned to his work and the horse observed him from a distance planing its body to the rocks of the side wall. If it's something you ain't happy with, why don't you just tell me? He pulled down another bale and stopped, for he saw now that the forage had been piled over a second dark passage at the back of the cavern, and he could not see what was beyond it, but he could, could smell an old stale rot of things excretory and organic, and when he stuck his head inside and sniffed, he inhaled a more acrid stench as well that seemed to sit heavily in the mouth of the passage. He covered his nose with his shirt and coughed and backed away, and then held his breath and pulled the remaining bales down so that the passage was fully exposed. I guess we know why they piled the hay up that hay up anyway. Wouldn't want to be smelling that all winter. Whew! I think I'd rather freeze to death, too. The man used leather strips to bind a several spring, 
a cerebral skin over his mouth and nose, preferring the fetter of that gamey half-cured leather to the miasmic reek emanating from the cave wall. Then, fetching a burning limb from the fire, he carried it to the back of the cave and heaved it into that second passage and saw immediately that it opened into the remove of another chamber, the floor of which sloped downward. The horse turned and clopped over the rocks and stepped into the snow outside and stood there looking back at the man in what seemed like irritation. Don't run off. I might need you. The man breathed deeply several times and then held his breath and plunged through the short passage and into the second chamber. His eyes adjusted, and in that flicker of firelight, he knew the place immediately for what it was. This was not any shelter that men had employed. Here was the lair. Here was an old lair of a beast. Here some sizable creature had lodged itself, dropping foul dung and dragging in its many kills. Later scavengers perhaps had done the work of unsorting and democratizing hundreds of white and ashen bones so that they were now strewn here and there, spines and hips and shins of things, origins uncatalogued. This rear chamber was much warmer than the front cave, but the fetid corruption hung so heavily in the place that the man could not remain long in it. He soon retreated to stack the bales again across the opening, and then he built of the remaining bales the windbreak and heat trap he had first intended hoping as he did that whatever foul predator had once resided here was not a migratory thing that might return. The days to follow crawled in a white and gray sameness, often without sound, and the deep snows hushed the world and closed it in, and the man slept in the hay barrier, sometimes twenty hours at a stretch, like the lingering of a child in a womb giving no thought to the world outside, and sometimes he woke to find even the floor and walls of the cave glossed with a thin ice that was the residue of his own breath and of the horses. Without human companionship, the man had become tuned to the moods of the horse. A nicker of unease, a snort, an agitation, a flattening of the ears to the head that signaled he should increase his own alertness. And most often in such moments he would peer into the night and find that limber wolves padded about somewhere in the vicinity. And once he thought he spied across the hills a great shaggy bear riffling through patches of blue moonlight and forest shadow and wondered that it was not, wondered that it was not dormant in winter. But none of these creatures ventured to harass the horse and the man in their cave. Never before this had he considered that a man might endure such intense and unremitting cold for so long.
The hay barrier served to keep him alive, but it could not fully counter the slow dollar of what it meant to be a man in a winter, such as comes only once in a hundred years, and to be clothed only for the spring. Unmarked days and nights, the man shivered and slept and pulled blankets of hay over him and lived in dream and shadow and memory. And perhaps the horse did as well, for it too ate less and also slept most of the day. In the long darkness, the man sometimes saw things that were not there, familiar silhouettes of chair and window, and he thought he was in his bed and called out to his daughter and rolled over to drape an arm gently round his wife, and then he must remember again where he was and what had become of happiness and how those things were no more and how the world and his existence had all come down to nothing but this cold. He sat shivering before the fire, and because he had no other task to occupy him, he constructed cut by cut and log by log in his mind a quaint cabin, and when he had finished that, he also built by that same fancy a sprawling meat hall as the thanes who dwelt in Taiho and Nelloc across the sea were said to have erected in eras now past. For days he searched the storehouses of his own memories and retold to himself each of the myths and stories and legends he could remember from his own childhood, and also the real histories of the peoples of Scree he recited for the benefit of the horse sometimes mulling for hours to retrieve the name of some ancient king. He long pondered the nature of fangs and considered whether there might be any truth to the bard's suspicions that they were creatures made rather than born, but he could not reconcile himself to the idea, for in the end it still seemed an abomination too astonishing and too vile even for the wickedest of men to have undertaken. And it also seemed a thing beyond achieving, and he could imagine no way in which it might be done. For days he mentally retraced the steps of his own journey, and then painted a detailed map of them in his head, adding flourishes and embellishments. He set before himself the task of constructing a ship. And though he was altogether unversed in the arts of boat rights, after several nights pondering, he believed he had devised a detailed and workable process by which a craftsman might achieve that end. By these and a hundred other such diversions of the mind did the man cling to his sanity in those cold, dark days, in those close, quiet quarters, without human company. He gave off checking his snares for days at a time because the boreal climb without could no longer be contended in his thin rags and because few animals were equipped with hides thick enough to keep them astir for long in such temperatures and so the snares were usually empty. And when they were not, the creatures caught in them were frozen solid and would keep that way till collected and thawed near the fire. 
The man thought many times that the winter must turn soon. But as many times as it did turn, it only turned colder still. The horse grew visibly gaunt, and the man knew that the hay was no longer robust, and so he increased the creature's rations, and as the weeks wore on, the hay barrier that stood between the man and the elements was being eaten away, so that he was continually reconfiguring the bales that were left. The man woke one night in the chill stone darkness, alert to the fear of his horse, aware of its snorting, aware that the fire had gone out. He shuffled toward the mouth of the cave and listened. Something large was snuffling at the stream below, grunting and splashing round the fish trap. The man seized the heavy sledge and crawled forward until he could see over the lip of the cave and out into the cold night where the deep snowfields glowed like the surface of the moon. Something rose near the stream below him, itself white and luminous and massive, with brutal tusks jutting from lower jaws, tusks long and upwardly curved as scimitars. A low, deep growl. The man felt suddenly aware after this sleep of weeks, and a new kind of fear thrilled in his most inward parts. He had never witnessed such a beast with his own eyes. He hadn't even known if they truly existed. What was it the children called them in their little rhymes? Bomb nubbles. He heard... He had heard trappers trading and by Lomi call them snow bears. His grandfather had told a story of his great-great-grandfather encountering such a creature on his journeys through the wastes, and he caught it, and he called it a most odious snow beast, a bully of up-pointed tooth and belligerent disposition. The man watched the thing for a moment as it clawed a fat fish up from the trap, snapped its jaws over the head and gills, and tore the fish in half with a wet rip. It was then that he caught the mephitic scent of the beast, malodorous fumes drifting foul and acrid in that polar cold. And he knew whose migratory lair he had unhappily occupied, for it was the same stench as haunted the sealed passage. He did not wait for the snow beast to notice him, for he knew that it would be soon enough. The man raised the hammer and charged the hulking form. He was three steps from it, planting his foot to bridge the wedged face of the hammer against the base of its elongated skull when the creature raised its head, bellowing foul breath then striking him full in the ribs with a smash of its powerful claws. The man was thrown backward to the cave entrance and for a moment was stunned, though he did not lose his grip on the hammer. The creature rose to its full height and bellowed again 
and the sound rolled out over hills and snowfields, there resiling from rocky rises and caroming from trunks of trees, and so returning in staggered bursts from a dozen points of field that gave the dim beast momentary pause, as if in the sound of its own echo, echoed cry it recalled and longed for a lost companionship. The man, meanwhile, scrambled backward into the cave and there took up his spear, and the horse whinnied wildly all the while. The snow beast lurched forward, raging, and the man fixed the shaft of the spear against a stone and braced for the impact, angling the tip at the charging creature's throat. The monster's brutish gait was unpredictable, and so the blade pierced wide, plunging into the left shoulder instead, but stopping the bomb nubble for a brief moment as it clawed at the thing that had suddenly pained it. The horse spun, seeking an exit, and finding none, reared and kicked and shied backward deeper into the cave. Rather than retreating from this first wounding, the snow beast was only stirred to greater rage, and yowling its fury, it clawed the air, striking rocks from the cave roof and clambering forward toward the man, driving the spear deeper into and through its own shoulder as it did. The man saw that the spear would not save him and pushed to his feet, taking up again the hammer that was beside him. He stepped in, ducked the, beast, the beast's raking claws and swung with all his might for the nearest tusk. He felt the contact shudder through the head and handle of the great hammer as the upward-pointed ivory cracked and sheared apart. The beast was stunned. The man did not wait for this new pain to funnel again to the wilder rage, but returned a two-handed backswing that jarred and snapped the remaining tusk from its mooring in the jawbone. The dazed creature now retreated backward, shaking its head in a confused flurry then spun its massive form round as best it could in the narrow cave entrance with the spear protruding awkwardly from its body. The man gave rapid chase, screaming now for the heady rush of battle, and overtaking the confused monstrosity just beyond the entrance, he brought his weighted hammer down hard against the hind leg of the thing. He heard the crunch of bone and the miserable, shocked howl of the predator, that for the first time in its years of life tasted wrenching pain and fear. It tumbled down from the entrance of the cave, splashing into the stream, and from there he watched as it limped and dragged itself away through the snow. The silver blade still, still pierced through its shoulder and levered even deeper there by the creature's own lurching movements. Twice in that infinite night he heard it howl mournfully from out in the flatlands, and he felt it as the most desolate sound in all the world's long history. For when had such a fell and towering beast ever been asked to spend such a long night 
rehearsing its own demise. The man kept awake lest the thing return, and he occupied the cold hours binding the monster's great fangs to the sides of his dark hat with a weave of twine so that they jutted up ominously from the hat band, curving slightly outward like horns from his head. The next morning at first light, he mounted the horse and they followed the convoluted and blood-dripped trail two miles through the deep snow and rode the crippled thing down with a final cavalry charge, staving the great skull with a crushing blow. Sorry, kiddos, this alarm keeps going off. That's that noise you hear. Give me one second, I'll be right back with you. Okay. I'm going to read that last sentence again. And we may hear that alarm again. That's I just have to put up with it. Because that's what alarms are for. To let me know something's going on. Okay. The next morning, at first light, he mounted the horse, and they followed the convoluted and blood-dripped trail two miles through the deep snow and rode the crippled thing down with a final cavalry charge, staving the great skull with a crushing blow. The odious snow beast had been too forlorn to lift its head or even defend itself in that final encounter, but it seemed to track the horseman's approach with the slow movement of eyes from which all fire and instinct had already been extinguished. The man retrieved his blade and skinned the creature for its thick coat and carved free several cuts of meat. That night the man determined that bomb nubble was edible, though a foul, dark, greasy, gamey meat that stank of liver and cooked apart the tough cords of twine. The horse was dissettled even by the scent, and the next day the man threw out what was left, for it was all congealed with a cold and gritty grease that made him wretch just to smell it again. The thick coat had stretched and tanned over a smoky fire in the cave entrance for a full week until it lost the bombnubble stench, and then he wrapped it round his shoulders as a cowl and fashioned crude leggings of two long pieces and used the odd remnants to line and patch his cloak and shirt, and the larger scraps he sewed into a blanket which he tied over the horse's back. Rolling himself tightly into those new furs, he slept warmer than ever he had, even in Torboro in summer. The man and the horse remained in the cave several weeks more, until the hay ran out and the muddy snowmelt of approaching spring swelled the stream to a narrow river and washed away the fish trap. In this small loss, though in hindsight it was to be expected, rankled the man's ire because it was like a rude retelling of his own life, and by the next morning they had broken camp and rode out with their faces set and their purpose renewed, preferring 
the risk of a late blizzard to the certain monotony of another day waylaid in that cold cavern. Okay, kids, that's where I'm going to stop for now. That's page 265. Okay, and here is a little bit of literary homework for you. Um, call this English class, Daddy's English class. Um, I would like you to think of three questions. Um, I would like you to contrast the first structure that the man encountered after finding the horse with the second shelter or structure. Let's call them shelters. The first shelter and what it was like, its contents, the man's reaction to it, and just kind of summarize that experience with this second shelter he found with a horse. Uh, that's the first thing I want you to think of. Second thing is I want you to think of the act of providence. And you could ask mommy what providence is. Let's just talk about this in very simple terms. God providing for needs Let's think about what this man encountered, what he found, and what was provided for him. And did those provisions come easily without work, or did they come with some work, or did they come with a lot of work? But think about that, how this man was provided for in this wilderness. And the third thing we just heard at the end here, uh, the man left the cave. After the man killed the bomb nubble and used its parts and spent several more weeks until the hay ran out and the muddy snowmelt of the approaching spring swelled the stream. Let's think about any evidence of this man being thankful and grateful or is he bitter and unthankful uh, and has he ever been thankful have, have we ever can we think back to any uh, experience he's had where he's thankful so contrast the two shelters in the wilderness, think about how God's provision looked to the man, all the different things that were provided to him. You can list them out. And then thankfulness and gratitude or the opposite things in his life. Okay, I love you kiddos. I want to pray for you real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for stories made by people who know you and love you and who know your son Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and who call upon your Holy Spirit for wisdom and comfort and counsel because there is so much to be learned from people who 
know you and love you and then uh, try and teach us things through the stories they write. Father, I pray that you would grow all the sloggy kids in wisdom and knowledge and understanding, especially of your word, but then how your word applies to our hearts, our souls, and our spirits, and our relationship with you, and our relationships with each other. Um, grow them wise, Father, and... Uh, and Father, of course, I, I pray that you would bless and prosper their relationships with each other and their mom and their dad, and that uh, we would share rich blessings and an abundant life together because we know you and because you love us and because you're gracious and merciful to us, Lord. And so we thank you for giving us everything all the good things in our life. They are from you. And sometimes we gotta work for them, sometimes we gotta chase after them. But Lord, thank you so much for loving us and providing everything we need for our lives and to know you. Help us to get good sleep and have a good day tomorrow. In your mighty, mighty name, Lord Jesus, we pray all these things, amen. Okay, love you kiddos. I'll catch you later. Love will make your days come 